Welcome to the Cornell Policy Review Podcast. My name is Trevor Atchison, and I'm a research associate at The Review. This podcast will explore a variety of policy issues through interviews and conversations with figures around the world. Today, we are excited to bring you the conversation between Courtney Schneider, an MPA fellow at the Cornell Institute for Public Affairs and the associate editor of the Cornell Policy Review's Environmental, Climate, and Energy Policy Team, and Dr. Luis Aguirre Torres, the Sustainability Director for the City of Ithaca, New York. They discuss Luis's role with the Ithaca Green New Deal, how sustainability practices in Ithaca can be modeled elsewhere, and other timely climate topics such as COP26. We hope you enjoy. Luis Aguirre Torres, the Sustainability Director for the City of Ithaca, New York, which is home to Cornell University's main campus. Luis began his role at the city earlier this year and has been tasked with a big project, which is implementing a local Green New Deal initiative called the Ithaca Green New Deal, adopted by unanimous vote in 2019 thanks to the work of the local Sunrise Movement and other community members. In a few short months, Luis has taken this initiative to heightened levels, establishing ambitious goals for the future of the city. Today, we are going to talk about what the Ithaca Green New Deal is, Luis's goals for its future, and some key considerations along the way. Thanks for being here, Luis. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So the first question, which many people have, is that a lot of people have heard of the National Green New Deal, but the more localized initiative is a new concept. Are the two of these connected, and are you in communication with national organizers? What is the Ithaca Green New Deal? Well, I am not in communication with national organizers, but we are part of the same movement. I mean, it, it really all started in, you know, 2019 when, you know, uh, you know a, a brand new congresswoman, Ocasio-Cortez, presented this to Congress. And it was inspired by, you know, the work that she had been doing with the, with the Sunrise Movement. And, you know, that was enough to start a movement, you know. And, uh, and it was very interesting because, you know, a lot of the time the discussion is around whether she presented something that Congress was ever going to accept. And, and, you know, I really strongly believe that was never the intention. You know, the idea was to start a movement to transform the entire country. And it was with the understanding that they didn't have the votes, but they want to put it at the forefront of the national agenda. So that was that was fantastic. And, you know, Sunrise Movement took, you know, basically to the task of, of bringing these to every city and, and every state. And uh, we were fortunate enough to have a chapter here in the city of Itaca. So in 2019, the the Sunrise Movement starts, uh, you know, putting pressure on the city government to do something, you know, uh, to fight climate change and, and not just talk about it, not just to pretend that we are doing something for the planet, just just like to set goals and to, you know, commit really to make this happen. So, you know, in 2019, the major, after, you know, several conversations with experts and with Sunrise Movement, he decides to recommend Common Council that we implement as a city uh, an Itaca Green New Deal, which at the end of the day is intended to be the city's answer to, to, to the climate change challenge and at the same time to address uh, other issues such as, you know, uh, historical inequities, economic inequality and social injustice. So that's what the Green New Deal is about. So when you compare it to the national uh, Green New Deal, you know, it's the same principle. You know, we are going to take the fight against climate change 
and, and, and use that also to promote other things that, you know, as a country we should have promoted ages ago, but we are just getting around to do it, which is, you know, social justice, among other things. Yeah, and Ithaca is definitely in a unique position where the city is really invested in climate change involved and in, in actually making those changes within the city. I think that's really incredible. What has the, the response of the community been that you've experienced? Well, there's different levels of response. The first one is everybody's on board with the idea, you know, and everybody has always been on board with the idea. Uh, but, you know, this idea requires a massive transformation. You know, the, the way we uh, identify ourselves as members of this community, you know, it's, it's going to alter a number of things and the dynamics that we have. And, and the moment that you start implementing any idea that is required for this transformation, you know, some people start thinking differently. Sometimes they disagree because they think it should be implemented in a different way or in a different timeline. And, and very often they, they just disagree with the fact that these may lead us to where we want to go. So, you know, there is support, but there is no support for the same ideas. So we are a very progressive community. Uh, if you compare to the rest of New York, especially upstate New York, we're definitely a very progressive democratic community, uh, but we're not a very homogeneous community. We're quite heterogeneous. And, and there are a number of things that people see and people and, and things that people decide to ignore, but, you know, different levels. And, and that's that's really, really interesting. How do you combat divisiveness within the community. I know you mentioned that Ithaca is very progressive, um, but the Green New Deal itself inspires a lot of criticisms. So when they hear the Ithaca Green New Deal, I can only imagine that certain people in the community kind of immediately are, are, are you know, their, their questions come up. And, you know, it, it is an interesting question that, you know, it could be answered in many ways. But one of them is there is a perception that, you know, climate change is, is purely an environmental issue. And, and, you know, people have this idea of the environmental movement from the 60s and the 70s, you know, which was, you know, aggressive in a way, you know, standing in front of everything and not necessarily doing anything to produce change other than try to stimulate change. You know, like there was no idea that you could be the change yourself. And I think a lot of people on the other side of the spectrum that don't believe in this, they still see us fighting for the environment as, as these same environmentalists from the 60s, you know. And, and there are problems with the approach that we have because it's not necessarily a coordinated, fully coordinated approach to fight climate change. Everybody has different ideas. So in some cases, you have a 16-year-old that goes in front of leaders and, and screams and shouts and it's full of energy. And that can be taken as finally young people are, are, you know, taking part in this fight. And others are thinking, what do they know? They're so young, they have no idea. And others are thinking, you know, we're a scientist. I'm a scientist, you know, this is all about science. So when you have somebody just, just showing energy, it's going to make people believe that there's nothing behind other than anger. And, and then people in the movement start, you know, thinking differently. You know, those who believe in science alone, they, they think that that's the wrong approach. And, and people who believe in, in the level of energy that, for example, Greta represents, you know, they, they, they disagree with the pace at which scientists are addressing the problem. So we have that, that divisiveness in general within the movement. So when you go outside, then it's going to be different interpretations of the same thing. And the interpretation that we give to the facts tends to serve our own beliefs most of the time. So, so we're always naturally biased to think, you know, something else. Yeah, absolutely. And that's interesting that you mentioned the, the conflict within the movement, too, because a lot of people within the climate debate talk about, like, the inter 
interconnectedness of the climate issue. So that's funny that some people, you know, within the climate issue itself would um, criticize the more scientific or a more social approach. You yourself have referred to climate change as an economic problem, though, um, which is also a, a common criticism among skeptics and people within the movement alike. What do you mean when you say that? And what are your thoughts on what sort of implications referring to it in that way might have? I, I strongly believe that climate change is an economic issue. And I think it has very serious environmental and social ramifications. And what we are trying to address a lot of the time are, are the consequences of that. And that's why we have been unable to actually stop climate change from happening, because we're addressing all of these things. And, and we have to, because we cost them, you know. But at the same time, if we think of it as an economic issue, uh, then, you know, this is something we created, this is something we can correct. And at the end of the day, you know, the reason why we have uh, carbon emissions is because of the economic model that we have globally, you know, and this has evolved since 1850. And, and we create a new economic model that is, is more carbon intensive all the time. And, and we come up with new innovations and technologies and we create new industries. And all of these industries are more and more carbon intensive. So every time we have a new iPhone, you know, you know, the amount of CO2 that goes into producing, you know, a billion of those devices because everybody's going to want one, for example. So this is part of the economic model. So if we were to alter the economic model, and it doesn't mean that we need to stop progress. I, I also don't believe that we need to go back and live in caves. I really think that, you know, this is the world we live in. We can just do so much better. You know, we can be much more efficient and we can be nicer to people. You know, there are so many things that could change. So I, I strongly believe, you know, it's an economic issue. I believe in the social and environmental consequences, and I believe they are serious and they need to be addressed. But at the same time, we need to stop this from happening. And, you know, in a way, people refer to these things differently, like adaptation and mitigation, for example. But what they are referring, we're adapting, and that is the consequences. And we're mitigating, and that is the reason. So when you are mitigating the effects of climate change, you need to address it as an economic issue. Right. And I, I completely agree with you that it is an economic issue. Do you think... I guess what would you say to those who take that that stance on the other on the opposite end of the spectrum? You know, they say it's an economic issue. Like I'm a big business in the short run, I stand to lose a lot of money if I, you know, decarbonize my business by whatever year. Because um, that's that's a huge topic of debate, right? So again, agreeing with you that it is really important. How do you approach those people, and how do you have those conversations? Well, you know, it's very interesting because having been an entrepreneur myself, you know, I, I had a couple of companies and I had a board of directors and I had a quarterly report to prepare. And, you know, in one case, I remember, like, there was a lot of pressure to, to you know, show growth or show profit every three months. So it was this this short term. Uh, and, and a lot of the time, you know, with, with the other company, you know, my board really was interested in the results that we we're going to have. And I had a five year plan. So they were interested in, in making sure that we were making progress in the right direction. They were not interested in immediate profitability. And, and that actually reflects also the division that you have uh, with, with a number of, of corporations. I mean, right now, what I would say is that, the, you know, the climate change debate made it all the way to the board of directors, you know, in every company, it's everywhere. Not only in Congress, not only in the office of the president, you know, also, you know, with every corporation. Cornell University is an example. No, the president of Cornell is talking about climate change now more and more often. So it, it, it made it everywhere. But still, you have people that, you know, live by, by you know, short term gains. 
And that's not a way for humanity to survive. That's not the way for a corporation to survive. And, you know, you have examples that normally are used in, in entrepreneurship when they want to tell you, like, how you need to prepare to start a new company. But these are lessons that you can take also in terms of how we fight climate change. You know, everybody talks about uh, Kodak and not wanted to change the business model. And, you know, that brought the company down eventually. And that was because they were interested in, you know, selling what they had instead of selling what they, the world will need, you know, in several years. So we, we use that analogy and start thinking, you know, the problem is, you know, businesses could benefit from fighting climate change. It's not only a way of differentiating yourself, it's a way of guaranteeing your own sustainability. Uh, and if people were thinking about long-run outcomes rather than immediate economic gain, you know, the, the world would be so different. And, and you know, uh, I... The part of the way we describe the Itaca Green New Deal is, is this people-first approach with long-run outcomes to elevate social capital. And, and that's what I believe, uh, you know, should apply, you know, in the business world, in, in policy, it should apply in civil society in general. Which is kind of a cultural shift. Right. I think most people in their in their regular lives are focused on short term, too, you know, for various reasons. But it's tough. It's a really hard problem to solve. Um, we'll talk about the, the block power decarbonization deal a little bit, too. So as climate talks are, are going on in Glasgow right now uh, during the 26th annual U.N. Conference of the Parties, Ithaca was making negotiations of its own. And last Wednesday, we became the first U.S. city to begin a full decarbonization plan in partnership with block power. And to many people, this seems overly ambitious and optimistic. I think the goal is by 2030. As eyes are on Ithaca, how does the city plan to implement this? Well, you know, we got ourselves into this, right? So <laughs> now we have to deliver. Uh, you know, I just want to say something about the COP. I, uh, you know, we were invited to present what we are actually doing. And, you know, the timing was just so perfect because there was an event in Glasgow where we were talking about how to achieve, you know, 100%, 24-7 carbon-free electricity for everybody. How do we increase access to affordable energy for everybody else? And the city of Ithaca had created with Cornell University the Finger Lakes Energy Compact as a proposal to the United Nations, not only to ratify the Paris Agreement, but to also meet these goals. So at the same time that David Kay, professor at Cornell University, was talking on behalf of the city about this, at the same time we had, here in the city, we were negotiating with Common Council, trying to, you know, to implement this program. And it was just, just magical. It was fantastic to know that at the same time that, that people were talking about what we can do as a small city over there, you know, we, we were actually talking about it here. And at the same time that somebody was blah, 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 too much talk and very little action, there was this small town in the United States doing a lot more than most in the planet. So... That's, you know, very ambitious and, you know, it's inspiring, you know, to talk about this. And, 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 and it's really funny because, you know, there was a lot of media attention this week. It was incredible. We made it everywhere, you know, for, for the past week. The mayor and, and, and me, we have been, you know, uh, interviews with, on TV, radio, uh, you know, conventional media, you know, everywhere. But the mayor and I agree that the onion picking on us was a sign that we actually made it, you know, <laughs> because and the onion is making making fun of our city, you know, making fun of how small we are, you know, we're a campus, you know, like, but I, I, I like that because it carries a lot of truth, you know, we're a small city and people think about us as being so different from everybody else. 
But that's the same as as, as as saying, you know, like, yeah, this car is so different from this other. But, you know, like, lift up the hood, and, and they're going to be very similar. You know, everybody has a powertrain, an engine, and, you know, if you press here, you go forward. If you press here, you stop. So at that level, we're exactly like every other American city. So what is there to gain with such a, you know, an ambitious and, and complicated and expensive program? So I'm going to start there, actually, you know. Because if we were to mitigate all the emissions in the city, we would be mitigating 0.0001% of the emissions globally. And then you can think like, what's the point? We're all gonna die anyway, right? But then you start thinking about the way we're doing it. And what we're doing is we are actually trying to identify what would make it work. We're trying to identify the different elements. You know, there are social elements, economic elements, political elements, financial elements, technological elements. And how do you put all those pieces together? How do you make them work? And how do you get people who are just interested in money to finance this? How do you get people who are interested in re-election to be part of this? How do you get people who are representing technology to deploy it in such small quantities? How do you get all that to work? At the end of the day, figuring that out is what we're actually giving to the world. You know, part of the Finger Lakes Energy Compact, part of the Ithaca Green New Deal, is not only that we're going to do this for our community. You know, there is the understanding that there is a, this is a global imperative. This is something that we're part of. It's not us. We're part of something much, much greater. So how do you contribute when you're a small city? And people focus so much on, oh, you remove the emissions. It's not going to mean anything. It's going to mean the world because we're going to identify these elements that can be replicated in many other places. And I'm not talking only about the United States because this is such a small community that for many it will not make economic sense however we're doing it and people investors are happy how's that happening well you can bring this same model to places where it will never be profitable like Africa like the Caribbean like like Southeast Asia Latin America imagine bringing this solution to those places and here we're talking about private equity investors uh, that can bring the money and, and we're talking about altering the capital structure so it can be affordable for the community and I can get into details of what all that means but at the end of the day, what that means is imagine that you remove the private equity investors and you put the World Bank. And imagine that it's not Ithaca, but it's some town in Nambia. And now imagine that, that, that you can actually put all the pieces that we put together here in that place. No? And, uh, and, and I say Nambia, Namibia. And the, I, I think you know, part of the beauty of what we're trying to achieve here is to demonstrate that it can be done and demonstrate how it could be done and how it can be replicated. So whenever anybody, and this is, you know, in every interview, people have asked me this question. And, you know, every time they ask me, I tell them, you know, we're changing the world. And if you think we're not, you're not paying attention. So how are we going to do this? And it's, it's, it's very difficult. It's extremely hard. But this is one of those places where it pays uh, to, to oversimplify things. You know, you, 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 if you look at the problem, yeah, I can take you through everything that we need to do and, and you're going to go crazy. I go crazy and I can't sleep. But then I start thinking, OK, it's, it's very easy. You know, it's about identifying the source of the emissions and then figuring out how they can stop producing emissions, buildings, cars, the electric grid. And then you can start thinking about, you know, all the technology and the financial elements. Or you can start thinking, OK, why do we have emissions in a building? Because we need energy. Why do we need energy? Because we need to, you know, heat up the place. OK, can we heat up the place in a different way? The answer is yes. You know, we have heat pumps. We have electric alternatives. OK, let's do that. But then it uses electricity. OK, that takes us all the way to the grid. How do we do this? OK, it turns out that here 83% of our electricity comes from hydro and nuclear 
carbon-free electricity, but that means we have 17%. You know, the city uses 40 megs, so 17% of 40 megs. That's what I have, uh, megawatts, sorry. That's what I have to replace. So that means, well, I need to add 1.7 megawatts of solar. And that's not a lot if you think about it. That's about 300 houses. I can do that. So suddenly you start looking, how do we deploy solar? And the problem is not the technology. The technology is very cheap, so it becomes a financial issue. Which takes me to the beginning. How am I going to replace the heat? Uh, how I'm going to install a heat pump instead of a natural gas furnace? How am I going to deploy uh, solar panels? How am I going to replace the 17% of not carbon free electricity that we have? So, you know, you need to start thinking about finance. Then that comes the financial element. And for the financial element to work, there has to be political backing because, you know, the government needs to commit to something. Nobody's going to come here and invest for a year and think, well, if this changes next year, you know, I may not be, uh, the, the project may not be going forward anymore. So the government needs to make needs to make a commitment. So it's the mayor, it's the common council. But now that we have certainty, we have a program all the way to, to 2030, we can go back to the investors. And then we tell them, it's not one heat pump, it's about 20,000, you know, and, and, you know, there's economies of scale. And also everybody's watching. So if you come here, if you invest in us, they're going to invite you to invest in many other places. And then you start talking to the state and the state has ways of providing incentives and they want us to succeed because politi politicians want Ithaca to be the first city because it means New York is going to be the first one to do this. And the United States wants Ithaca to succeed because it's going to be the first city first U.S. city to succeed at this. So suddenly, you know, there are some economic incentives that come and there is certain urgency because, you know, Biden administration is going to last just four years. So they wanted to succeed and they want you to succeed really fast. So suddenly you have all of those pieces and it comes back in the form of incentives and money and you put it in the pool of money that came with the investors and the investors gave you $100 million because they wanted to make sure that they will have $10 million in return. But guess what? We got money from the state and the federal government and we put it in the same pocket and suddenly instead of 100, we have $110 million because the federal government and the state government and the local government and some philanthropic organizations put money in the same pool. And then suddenly the pressure to deliver returns to the investors goes away because we already have the return even before we start. Right. That means we can deploy this practically for free. Have you everybody. have you noticed that as you've secured more private investors, the federal government has been more willing to help and offer Absolutely. funds? Absolutely. Interesting. Uh, they were, the conversations that I had with them, you know, because it, it goes hand in hand with thinking that this is an economic problem. And, you know, the way I refer to the Paris Agreement, the way I refer to, to, to COP26 is this giant uh, risk mitigation exercise that the world is implementing. So if you think about risk mitigation, you know, financial risk mitigation goes hand in hand with that. So when you start talking about fighting climate change as a risk mitigation strategy, and then you go and talk to government, and government, you know, it's not that they like it, but they're used to paying for everything. You know, they're used to, you can afford a, a, a heat pump, I'll pay for it. But, you know, we cannot do that for the entire country. If we were to do that, it's not $3.4 trillion, which is what people are bouncing around. I think at the end of the day, it's going to be like twice that. So who has $6 trillion to pay for everything in case it works? So what the government really wants is for every dollar to multiply by 20, you know, the impact that it could have. So if by giving me $10 million, they unlock $100 million, and then if by guaranteeing a 10-year project, I de-risk $100 million, you have all the elements. You have the money, you have the risk mitigation through the risking, the capital, and then you have a way of modifying the capital structure so it is cost-free for the community. 
that's the innovation of what we're what doing. What sorts right of now. so in in doing these private public partnerships, um, what sorts of repercussions might that have for the city? Who is the hundred million from? We have a company, a private equity fund called Alturos. Okay. And then we have uh, four uh, investors that are coming together with Block Power. Okay. Yeah, I'm just curious in in kind of researching this. Um, when you bring in, you know, an outside entity into the city, where and this is kind of around the question of, you know, how the how the community feels about what's going on too, um, what sort of implications that might have, you know, because if the, if the money is coming from the government, obviously that that looks a little bit different in in terms of like what the government's expecting versus a private partner. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, uh, everybody has their own life experience, and everybody has their own, you know lens through which they look at life. And, and people may think about, you know, the financial crisis of 2009. I lost my home. I'm one of those who, who, who was living in California, and because of the financial crisis, I ended up homeless. I was literally homeless, living in the streets with nowhere to go for about, you know, a month, maybe, with my wife, you know, hanging out with friends because of the financial crisis. But that made me even more interested in understanding what happened, you know, and, and how it worked out. And, and then you understand that, you know, at the end of the day, same with every major conflict, every major crisis, there's humans in the middle. And it's greed that gets in the way. And it's willingness to be at the center of everything, you know, that drives these things. So you need to make sure that you remove that. So a lot of people that have this idea of the financial crisis, they believe that investors cause that. And it's, it's very funny because investors, it's like saying students are bad or, or politicians are, are idiots. I mean, at the end of the day, that, that's not true. Neither of those things is true, right? But it's the perception that people have. So investors are not the devil. It's just people whose job is to work with money. And it's a funny thing because when you go to the bank, the teller is an intermediary between the people who have the money and you. An investor, a private equity firm, these guys are not millionaires. These guys are, have been hired to manage money. It's the same as the bank teller. It's just they don't give you $100, they give you $100 million. Right. But it's exactly the same thing as intermediaries. And their job is to make sure that that money comes back somehow. Same thing with the person who's trying to sell your credit card. So, you know, we're used to having this. It's just that when we increase the amounts, people start, you know, exaggerating and going way beyond what people normally go. And, and when, you have, when you think about it, what happened during the financial crisis? Well, you have financial companies, you know, unable to cover mortgages. They went to insurance. And then insurance companies were able to cover the financial companies. They went to reinsurance. The reinsurance industry managed to keep the world afloat. And then the federal government of every country brought some money to pay back. So they pay the insurance company, sorry, the financial corporations who pay the insurance companies, who pay the reinsurance companies. So what does that tell you? That for the past 10 years, a lot of the money has been concentrated in a number of entities called reinsurance companies. Mm -hmm. They are the ones that kept the money after the financial crisis. So everybody likes to say, a lot of money just disappeared. No, it didn't. It went to some places. So right now, a lot of the money in the world, you know, a lot of the money is with reinsurance companies, with real estate companies, and financial institutions that survived the crisis. So who has greater responsibility? The government that gets money from taxpayers of those three entities that actually have the money from the financial crisis? In my opinion, it's them. So we went to them. We went to reinsurance companies, to insurance companies, and private investors to finance what we're trying to do right now. 
and the money is coming willingly to this community. So I don't think, you know, I think there are villains and I don't think there is like just good people. I mean, you know, everybody had something to do. We created this model that we willingly implemented in our community, in our in our country. We got out of it, I don't know, some sort of miracle. <laughs> but right now, you know, we, we just need to be careful. We need to understand who does what, why they do it. And we need to make sure that this, like, we need to build redundancies to add, you know, resiliency to everything that we do. We cannot depend on the will of one person, one institution. We cannot have uh, something that the next president can take away. And we cannot have something that the greed of one single person or institution, you know, could destroy. And I believe that we're building those redundancies. We're making our community much more resilient. And I think the plan that we have, you know, is full of those things. So I really don't think anything bad is going to happen. But people will always find something. And whenever they find something that is real, hopefully we'll realize that and we'll address it. Right. Right. And the fact that these companies are also are interested in partnering with you speaks a lot to the goals that you have surrounding the Green New Deal um, and your ambitions, too. I mean, no one's done this in the United States. Right. So that's it's really incredible what you are doing. And I I'm, imagine that you hope that, you know, as other cities, whether they're in the, in the United States or global, um, as as Ithaca implements these things and as other cities try to replicate it, that these partnerships will continue to exist and that, that money will be tapped into for, you know, for the greater good, so yeah, to speak. And, and the money is there. And, you know, once again, the, the other elements that you need to understand how insurance companies work, for example, if you're going to tap into that pool of money and they need to lose money, you know, that's part of their business. If they don't lose money, they're not a good insurance company. It doesn't mean they're going <laughs> to lose all their money. So there has to be a structure of balance in those in, in those industries. And it's very interesting. But if you study that, if you understand that, then you can provide some of what they need for their business model to, to thrive. So it's all about, you know, getting the right people to do the right job. You know, when I came here, I had a skill set, which, you know, I had been an entrepreneur. I knew how to raise money. I had to develop gigantic projects. And then I come here to work for a local government, and I really was like, I don't know if this is going to work. You know, I don't know if this is the kind of marriage that I wanted. But it turns out that, yeah, like the skills that I developed through the years are very useful for this city, and I'm very happy about that. Something that you actually mentioned earlier, too, just about how the 17% of, um, you know, our, our electricity is not generated from, from renewables. Ithaca is, again, in a very unique position where it is very small, and we do have a lot of renewable energy already. And so implementing these initiatives might be a lot easier for Ithaca than it might be for, you know, somewhere else. And the goal for the decarbonization is by 2030, is that correct? Um, so I, another main criticism of, you know, climate talks that are happening now in Glasgow and, and just happen, have happened over the years is that governments and businesses say, OK, well, by 2050, we're going to do this. Right. But they're they're talking about commitments, not actions. And Ithaca being such a small city is already taking action to to get to this point by 2030. But, you know, the the amount of work that Ithaca has to do is actually very small relative to these other cities and businesses. Um, what is your thought on, on all of these commitments that are being made and how, how Ithaca actually can be made to be a model for, for other areas? Well, on one hand, it's, it's as you say, it's commitment to, to do this, to produce this change, you know, and, on, and also commitment to do it responsibly because, you know, I could have, you know, the government could mandate a number of things, but it could bankrupt the entire city, you know. So we need to be very careful in all the decisions that we make. What we do it's impossible in New York City or Los Angeles or Chicago. It's absolutely impossible. And and also, you know, 
when, when once again you go back to like like the perspective that people take in the climate change uh, fight, you know, uh, the Paris Agreement happened in 2015, and when we were talking about you know setting a date, we thought about 2050, and there is an economic rationale behind that. You know, it has nothing to do with the environment. Right. And it's it's a funny thing because we were motivated by climate change and science told us this thing is going to catch fire by 2040. But at the same time, because we don't want to destroy the economy, we, we decided that we need to do it 2050 because, you know, up until the Paris Agreement, the U.S. government and many other governments had, you know, allowed investors to invest in fossil fuel infrastructure. So how long does it take to depreciate? Well, it happens to be around 25 years or, or 30 years. So we chose 2050 because it was the time it was going to take to fully depreciate fossil fuel infrastructure. The key was not to make any further investments, and we did, and that was a mistake. But 2050 was decided because that was when we could fully depreciate infrastructure. And it wasn't that we were not going to do anything until 2050. And that is one of the things that some people fail to understand in at the COP, you know, those people arguing. It's not that we're not going to do anything. We're going to finish the task in 2050 because there's companies that at some point were indispensable. You know, we needed, you know, reliable natural gas so we could have electricity in our houses. So we told them, please invest in more pipes. Please invest in more infrastructure. Then we realized that that was the wrong approach. But these guys invested all the money they had in providing for us. And in exchange, the government gave them a promise that, you know, we're going to make sure that you remain a viable company so you can keep the jobs that you created. Mm. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't pay them. You know, we, uh, I believe that the answer to that is we could accelerate this to 2030 if we compensate those organizations that invested in infrastructure that are going to be, that, that is about to become a stranded asset. So if we could compensate for a stranded assets, oh, by all means, let's bring it down to 2030. And I believe there is money for that. So I'm just saying, you know. But from a more scientific perspective, do you think that, that you know, giving an initiative 30 years into the future is actually going to, is that too little too late in your opinion? It depends how much we do beforehand. How much do you foresee happening in the next 30 years? Uh, it's the question, are we going to achieve our goals to really stop climate change? I don't know. I, you know, there is the optimist in me that thinks that we will, but so many things can get in the way. You know, we were on the right track, and I remember the day Obama got elected and everybody was talking about change mm -hmm. and how change was possible. And eight years later, you know, we go back into you know, very dark era in American history where, you know, all these, we, it, 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 it's not linear. It's not that we are behind for years because of those four years, we're behind 10 years now. And, and you know, it's, it was almost a disaster for humanity, not only for the United States. So, you know, I would love to, to, to see that not happening ever again. You know, I would like to say that we're going to do everything we can to produce change. But it's going to be hard. It's going to be very, very difficult. But I am an eternal optimist. I really believe that we can do this. And, and part of what we're trying to do is to demonstrate that we can do it. You know, and, and I was at this rally the other day um, where, you know, with Sunrise Movement and others, and, you know, we were asking people to vote for Prop 2, which was going to amend the New York State Constitution to grant, you know, every New Yorker right to clean water and clear water. And, and sorry, and, and cleaner. And, uh, and they asked me to, to say a few words, and, and I had something written down, and then I decided, like, I'm not going to read that, you know, because what I had to say was, I come from a country 
where this is not possible. You know, mm -hmm. I come from a place where you cannot change the constitution to grant grants to anybody. It will never happen in my country. And it will never happen in most countries in the world. It can happen in the United States. And it's not going to happen at the national level until it happens in enough states. So it's, it has to start here. But it's a funny thing because most people are not in agreement with that, but we are as a community. Imagine what could have happened if, if Ithaca decided not to vote for Prop 2. We probably wouldn't have it in the Constitution as, as we have today. Right. And it's a very interesting case because it tells you the power of a small community. And, and I mentioned in that rally, we can change the world because it starts in Ithaca, ends up in Albany, eventually in Washington, and finally other countries you know, see that this is possible. And, and so I really think that if, if it can happen anywhere, it can happen here. And we have people, we have the smarts, we have the political will to do this. And so I'm hopeful that, that it will happen. Absolutely. And that really speaks to, you know, encouraging people and empowering people to speak up because a lot of people want to see this change and a lot of people do care about climate. And I don't know if it's just a product of me being more interested in it and talking about it more with, you know, the folks that I'm around, but it seems to be coming up a lot more. Um, and you, yeah, you make a great point that if people stand up, you can, you can make a difference. Um, it's just very difficult for a lot of people to stand up, right? And that's actually brings me to another question I was going to ask you, um, and that's about the, the equity piece of the Ithaca Green New Deal. Um, on the website, it says, quote, uh, ensure benefits are shared among all local communities to reduce historical, social, and economic inequities. That's, that's a big goal. And and that's really broadly that can be very broadly defined too. Yeah, how don't you love that? How big? <laughs> yeah, that's that can mean so many things to so many people. What does it mean to you? And and how do you intend to achieve it? What that what you read means to me is that nobody had you know enough courage mm -hmm. to properly define it and and prevent it from being vague and write a resolution that will have very specific elements with a clear definition of what redirect what benefits what community what low income actually means for all of these things when it comes from government you need a legal definition for things you know it's not the understanding it's not what people believe it's legal definitions and the fact that this happened at the federal level too that we have a justice 40 program that aims to redirect 40 percent of the benefits of the fight against climate change to climate justice communities without ever defining climate justice communities or community for for, for that matter without right. defining what redirect means do i give them the money or does that mean the benefits is long-term or immediate benefits Nobody dares to define these things because everybody knows the chaos that will come the moment you define that. So what you need to do is to operationalize that. You need to like, okay, we're not going to define it. Let's do it through work, you know. So what, what I did when I, when I took on the Green New Deal, if you look at that, the, what you read is the fifth goal of the Ithaca Green New Deal. Not the first or the second. It's the fifth one. It's a footnote in the Ithaca Green New Deal. You know, we're going to change the world and yeah, we're going to take care of people. You know, it's like, yeah, culture and shit. So I, I, I think, you know, uh, that's what was wrong with the, the way the Ithaca Green New Deal was defined. And when I came on board, I remember the first thing that I did was like, ask permission, can I rewrite this thing? Because, you know, as it is, you have to excuse me, but it sucks. You know, we need to come up with something that actually is representative of who we are and what we want to be. 
So um, we rewrote this and it became, you know, a people centric approach. It became something very different. And, you know, as, as, as I mentioned before, you know, it is all about elevating social capital so we can build a new society where equity, where justice, where sustainable prosperity are at the very core of the transformation that we're promoting. That is what the Ithaca Green New Deal is. That's what it is. So that resolution is cool, fun and games, but it doesn't say anything. So what we are turning the Ithaca Green New Deal into is, is this, you know, social capital at the very core, equity, justice, sustainable prosperity. And sustainable prosperity, we define it, we further define it as this ample abundance that we all have to share so we can guarantee our future and, and you know, our children's future. So at the end of the day, the equity piece is, is not only paramount, it's the very center of what the Ithaca Green New Deal is and should be and hopefully will be. So how do you do that? How do you turn that into action? That's when it gets interesting. So we started doing numbers because that's what I do. I do modeling. And, and so we started doing numbers and we realized, okay, we were to really transform the, the building stock. You know, we work to decarbonize buildings. How much is it going to cost? Well, 23% of our population qualifies as low moderate income. But what that also means is that, you know, 77% does not. So... Am, am I going to distribute the money equally? No. Like that 23% is going to take 50% of the money, mm. you know, that we're going to use to decarbonize buildings. That means that I have 50% to decarbonize the rest. So I need to find a way of make up for that difference. But at the end of the day, that's what I'm doing. And what does that mean in terms of implementation? Well, for every building that I do that is not low moderate income, I'm going to do two that are low moderate income. Because it's not about getting there at the same time. Know, what you want is, is, is to compensate first because you need to make sure that the play field is, is at the same level for everybody. Right. So we, we cannot get there at the same time. No, you, you need to push. You know, so, so other changes happen f uh, you know, faster and people can benefit from all of this. Uh, so we started looking at money. We started looking at resources, people. And we started looking at, you know, who can drive this transformation. And this was a very interesting thing because who can drive this transformation? You know, it could be me, it could be a politician, it could be somebody with a lot of education or somebody without education. And then you think, no, it has to be somebody who has lived through this, who has seen the future and somehow can promote, you know, can take us there. And people laugh because I have used this phrase before, like somebody who can see the future, but it's not so difficult, you know. We, we are now working with block power. Donnell... Bird, he's the CEO of Block Power. You know, he, he was born in poverty. He was literally born in poverty. He was homeless for a while. And he's not anymore poor. He's not anymore, you know, having to deal with those issues. So he knows what change means. Mm. And his life today is the future for many people. And the same goes for me, you know, like I come from Mexico, I come from a very specific background, and now I am here. So this is the future for a lot of people. So many people have seen the future. Many people are living the, the future of other people. So that's what we want to do. So we cannot have the usual people driving this because they created a business that could probably implement it. We need somebody with a vision that was created through life, through hardship. And, and so it's impossible to put that in an RFP. So we're looking right. for somebody who has suffered. No, we're looking for somebody who can do this. And once you find those who can do this, you identify the ones that are doing it for the right reasons. So, you know, we found Block Power to do this, and, and we believe that, you know, that is the right company. That brings us to a really good wrapping up point, actually, um, just about envisioning future 
And so I guess want to ask you, what does, a, what does a better future look like to you and what sorts of things do you think are important for us to be asking, you know, at, at every level to ensure that we reach it? Well, I think, you know, at, at the core of everything that we're trying to do is we're trying to redefine the sense of identity and belonging in this community. And, and it has to be new. It has to be created with, with, you know, in a more inclusive way, you know. It's not white Ithaca anymore. It's not progressive Ithaca anymore, you know. It's inclusive Ithaca, perhaps. It's decarbonized Ithaca. It's perhaps, you know, a bunch of people that, a bunch of people that can finally see the future, you know. And, and if we were to do that, you know, imagine that, you know, that suddenly everybody in the city can see the future. And, and that means we're all, you know, playing with the same tools, with the same level of education, the same access to infrastructure. So that's the way I, I think we can, we can hope that one day we can refer to this community as, you know, we are setting the example worldwide of what it could be. And, and I don't have the answer of what this new sense of identity or this new sense of belonging should be. I think it has to come organically, it has to come naturally, but it has to include everybody at the end of the day. And, you know, that's going to be hard. You know, on all the interviews that I did, it was very interesting what the focus was for a lot of them, you know, and, and this has to do with, with the question because BBC, you know, we had this interview with BBC and this guy was very funny. He was like, you're junkies. I was like, I'm not a Yankee, but thank you, man. That's that's fine, you know. <laughs> uh, and then you had this other one that was entirely focused on the economics, like, tell me how the money works. Mm-hmm. And then it was NPR and he was like, tell me about race. And I was like, what can I tell you about race? And at the end, if you read the article that was published by NPR, it ends with a quote that I actually I did say, you know, that when we have the the vote with Common Council, then then you have, you know, the representation of the city, which actually is quite represented, other than Doxon, everybody's white. And uh, but then you had, you know, the two black founders of Block Power and the Brown Sustainability Director. And you know I'm getting emotional. <laughs> It really was uh, a moment where we move forward together. That's incredible, Luis. Well, the city is really lucky to have you. And I, I for one, am amazed by all the initiatives that you're taking on and by what you've done in Ithaca and what you've done in your past and the way that you're bringing people together and, and being a beacon for those who, you know, look, can look up to you and and where you came from, your experiences, um, you know, people of color, people of people who maybe come from poverty, like um, the people with block power. I, I think it's incredible. Um, and yeah, I mean, you're gonna make me emotional now too. But um, yeah, this is this is amazing. It's really nice to be surrounded by people who, who care, like so yeah. so obviously care. And maybe at the end of the day, that's what it's about. You know, maybe I think it is. Yeah, and and, and it's very funny because. You know, like, like my family, you know, my, I talk to my brother very often and he's like, you shouldn't take it so personally. It's like, how can you, can, how can you not? Right. You know? Like, uh, if you don't take it personally, what are you going to do? You know, what change can you bring? So this has to be part of your life and, and part of what we do. And I, I, I know a lot of people for us here and, you know, the people that I'm working with, it's extremely personal. And, and I think that's what we need, you know. And, and as a community, we're taking it personal. And, and we're going to make this change, I think, just, just for that reason. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for Luis. It's been a pleasure talking to you and hearing about what you have going on here in Ithaca. And I'm glad you joined us today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure.